Hey there, it's Dr. Jamie and want to tell you about my favorite salt. It comes from a company called Redmond Life, Redmond Real Salt, and of course their amazing electrolyte mix, the Redmond Relight Mix. The reason that real salt is better is because it actually comes from the earth. It comes from an old salt mine underneath the state of Utah, of course, located in Redmond, Utah. This salt contains over 60 trace minerals, which is super important because a lot of those things are stripped during the processing of salt. The reason it's also important that it actually comes from the earth is most Himalayan Celtic salts come from a body of water, meaning it has to go through chemical processing to strip out all the chemicals and toxins and other agents and can also contain things like microplastics. So go check out Redmond Real Salt. I think it's the best tasting salt. It's pure. It's clean. There's literally one ingredient in this real salt. Go check them out at www.redmond.life. And when you purchase anything from Redmond Real Salt or the Relight, make sure you use my code, Dr. Fit. That's D-R-F-I-T. To the Fit and Fabulous Podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. I'm super, super excited to bring you our fourth episode of this podcast. You guys have been uh, so receptive to the first three episodes and have been so kind to leave all your reviews and all your comments on Apple Podcasts. Uh, You know, we went top 15 that very first week, so let's keep the ball rolling. Well, I'm super excited to introduce our guest on today's uh, podcast, and him and I had done a YouTube video a while back on one of his previous books, and I was super pumped to bring him back because I think the work that he does is very important to not only me as a physician, uh, but for all my followers and especially my low carb followers and my athletes and the people that are really trying to do everything they can to optimize their health. So I want to introduce you to Dr. James DeNicolantonio. He is a doctor of pharmacy and a cardiovascular research scientist. He's super well-respected internationally. He's known as a scientist and an expert on health and nutrition. He has contributed extensively to health policy. He's testified in front of the Canadian Senate regarding the harms of added sugars. He serves as an associate editor of the British Medical Journal's Open Heart, which is a journal published in partnership with the British Cardiovascular Society, and he's on the editorial advisory boards of several other medical journals. Dr. Danicola Antonio is the author and co-author of over 250 publications in the medical literature. He is also an author of five best-selling books, which I've got two of them sitting right next to me here, The Salt Fix, Superfuel, The Longevity Solution, The Immunity Fix, and of course, his newest book, The Mineral Fix. For those of you watching on YouTube, I've got this book right here for you. You can follow him on Instagram. I know I do. He's also on Twitter at Dr. James Denick and on Facebook, Dr. James Denick Lantonio. And of course, you can always visit his website at drjamesdenick.com. Welcome. Welcome, James. I'm super excited to have you back and talk about some super important topics. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Pumped to be here. Okay, so I gave everybody your your wonderful, amazing bio and and uh, kind of building you up and and all the work that you've done. But tell people a little bit about yourself and how you ever got into you know this work and writing these books and like where does your passion for all of this come from? Yeah, when you, it was kind of funny when you were listing off like um, you know cardiovascular research scientists, but then I'm like the salt guy that actually thinks salt is beneficial. So it's kind of ironic that like I'm. 
uh, you know, most of my research is on preventive cardiology. And yet I'm someone who's actually promoting, you know, good amounts of salt intake, which is completely opposite of, you know, what most cardiovascular um, or cardiologists will recommend. And really it stems from my athletic background. Like I wrestled in high school, I ran cross country. In high school, I lifted lots of weights. And as most athletes inherently understand that salt is critical to performance cognition. And I think that gets lost in the medical community because most of them don't focus on fitness. They don't focus on nutrition. They just focus on giving someone a pill. And, they're, and if they see high blood pressure, they instantly tell people the first thing they should do is to cut salt because they've been trained that this substance is a poison when it's really an essential nutrient. And so really that's where a lot of my research stemmed from. When I was a practicing uh, pharmacist, my patients would come up to me and say they felt terrible on these diuretics or on a low salt diet. And as soon as they started adding salt back, they instantly felt better. So I think we need to start bridging the gap between these quote unquote guidelines based on expert opinions and how people are actually doing in the real world. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, personally, I use tons of salt, but I didn't always, you know, I, my background is in nutrition and exercise science. I was a collegiate athlete, but here I was in, you know, the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, going through and getting my nutrition degree. And really a lot of what I was taught was eat low fat and definitely eat low sodium. You know, I was going through training at the time when recommendations started to get extremely stringent, only eat 1500 milligrams of sodium don't eat salt because it will cause high blood pressure. High blood pressure causes cardiovascular disease. Uh, don't eat fat because that will raise your LDL and that will also cause cardiovascular disease. So stay away from all the saturated fat and all the salt. And then here I am, fast forward to 2021, and I eat a ton of saturated fat, nutrient-dense animal foods, of course, but for anybody listening, beef has just as much monounsaturated fat as it does saturated fat, which is a, a lesser known fact. And I'm eating tons of salt. So I went to the gym this morning had two scoops of Redmond Relight, which is one of my favorite salts to use. So I had two grams of sodium walking out the door this morning, which is of course like above the threshold. I mean, now they're starting to like kind of realize some of these things, but where do these salt recommendations come from? Like, where did we go so wrong with sodium? Most of the demonization of salt stems from, and, and other nutrients, saturated fat, from one person who had like a lot of clout. So with saturated fat, it was Ansel Keys. With salt, it was Louis Dahl. He was actually the one that had to genetically engineer mice to be salt sensitive in order to actually induce high blood pressure with high amounts of salt. Because normal mice and normal rats actually would not develop hypertension no matter how much salt he gave. So we had to actually like inbreed these rats to genetically become salt sensitive. And a lot of the research was based on these animal studies, as well as cherry picking data points, looking at different countries that as salt intake increased, uh, blood pressure incidence increased. But of course, when you add back all the data points, like which InterSalt did and looked at 48 countries rather than just six, the blood pressure actually slightly reduced with more salt intake. So a lot of it comes down to hyper-focusing on surrogate markers, like you said, right? Saturated fat, LD will raise LDL. So that then assumption is that that will lead to an increase in cardiovascular disease. And then with salt, the same thing, they focused on blood pressure and, that, that, and then they extrapolated that to, well, if it raises blood pressure a little bit for every you know, gram of salt that you consume, this is going to raise your risk of cardiovascular disease by X percentage. But they never looked at the other surrogate markers that are all harmed on a low salt diet. 
So you have maybe this reduction in blood pressure, which in the mineral fix and the salt fix I focus on, you're just dehydrating the person. This is not a good reduction in blood pressure like you're dilating the arteries or you're increasing nitric oxide availability. You're, de you're just depleting their blood volume. So you're basically just telling someone to restrict their water intake when you cut salt. So it's not even a good reduction in blood pressure. And then when you look at all the other harms, like rises in stress hormones, like aldosterone, renin, angiotensin II, noradrenaline, heart rate, insulin resistance, everything's worsened on a low salt diet. So when you actually then cumulatively look at the whole picture, there's more stress on the heart. If you multiply blood pressure by heart rate on a low salt intake versus a normal salt intake. Yeah, yeah. I know um, when I first kind of got into this space, I did my very first post on salt and the importance of sodium as I started to really dive into the research really for my own benefit at, you know, at the beginning and now, of course, for all the patients that I treat. And I treat so many patients that eat low carb, which the sodium requirements are even higher. So for listeners that don't understand the physiology behind that, essentially, you know, when we talk about hydration, salt and, and minerals are super important because that's what tells the water to either stay inside the cell or outside the cell or be in the vasculature or out of the vasculature. And when you're in a low carb state and you aren't intaking, you know, carbs and sugar, you keep insulin lower and sodium loss uh, happens in the distal nephron of the kidney and it follows, it follows sodium. So it's essentially, you know, we blamed salt for a lot of things when there were so many uh, refined sugars and flours and, and other added carbohydrates in the diet. And of course, salt really got demonized, but I remember doing this first post on it. And one of my med school classmates who was a cardiology fellow at the time, I could like see his head spinning in the comments on my Instagram. Oh my gosh, you can't tell people this. This is like super dangerous information. You can't, you know, be telling people to eat this much salt. So is there a population of people that should limit salt or who, how do we identify those people? The three main causes of salt sensitivity are low potassium intake, low magnesium and insulin resistance. And when you fix those things, 99% of people can actually handle a normal amount of salt and would benefit from a normal amount of salt. So there's been studies where if they give insulin resistant people metformin, um, they're no longer salt sensitive because you improve the insulin resistance. So when you have elevated levels of insulin, you retain more salt. And so when you drop the insulin levels, like on a low carb diet, you flush out salt and water and you can become dehydrated. And so what's interesting is everybody always focuses too on hydration and that we're made up of water. We're, well, we're not just made up of water, right? We're, we're more like bags of salt water. Yeah, like a patient comes into the hospital, I don't hang a bag of water. <laughs> I hang a bag of sodium chloride. Exactly. I mean, if you, if you just infused water into someone's blood, you could kill them by causing low sodium levels in the blood because that'll push water into the brain. Um, and so when we, when we think about this from a physiological perspective, the same concentration of salt in our blood compared to other minerals, it's 90% salt versus other minerals. The exact same concentration as salt is in the ocean compared to other minerals. So we're just about a quarter of the concentration of salt in our blood compared to the ocean. So essentially we are salt solutions. And so we lose salt through sweat. We don't just sweat out water. We lose about a half a teaspoon of salt per liter of sweat and so we need to understand that hydration isn't just water intake. We need to be bringing in the salt as well to stay hydrated so we can exercise and things like that. Right, right. 
Now, of course, I, I love that I can have more salt because I think it tastes delicious. I think food tastes better when, you know, it has uh, the salt on it. And I can always tell when I need more because I know that that thirst effect for me is, okay, I need a, I don't just need water. I need a little bit of, of, of salt with it. But there's other benefits inside the body, you know, reasons why a low salt diet is dangerous. And one of them, of course, is our, you know, immune system. And you and I talked on the last YouTube that we did about the immunity fix. Can you talk about why sodium is so important for the immune system? Yeah, salt in general, um, both sodium and chloride are very important for the immune system because it starts with stomach acid. So essentially in order for you to, your first line of defense against pathogens that you're ingesting is stomach acid or hydrochloric acid. And the chloride is coming from salt. You, you, you don't make it. It's essential. You have to get it from consuming salt. So if you want to kill pathogens in the stomach and you want to actually digest food and absorb nutrients, you have to have a good amount of salt. There's been a few studies that have shown that people who go on low salt diets, their stomach acid goes down and the pH of the stomach goes up. So you're essentially like, it's almost like going on a PPI when you cut your salt intake. Which we know is really bad long-term. Really bad. And the thing is, is a lot of people who may have digestive issues or who aren't absorbing nutrients well could be due they're not having enough salt to create the hydrochloric acid to actually digest, break down the food and absorb the nutrients. So from that perspective, if you need salt to digest food, it's the most important nutrient because without it, you can't break down proteins and things like that and, and release the nutrients inside the protein. And then if, you, if we look at chloride, not just from a hydrochloric, but hypochlorous acid, which is secreted by white blood cells to kill pathogens, requires, again, the chloride from salt in order to do that. And then after the immune system has secreted that to kill pathogens, it will secrete something called taurine chloramine, which again is chloride, to actually inhibit the inflammation afterwards. So the thing is, is the reason why we're bathed in salt, the reason why we have so much salt in the body because it moves almost every single molecule in the body. Every single neurotransmitter in the brain in some way or another depends on sodium or chloride in order to move. Um, if you want to drive vitamin C into any tissue, you it brings sodium is required in order to do that. Two sodium ions bring one molecule of ascorbic acid into the brain or into the bone. You can actually induce osteoporosis in animals simply by dropping the sodium levels in their blood because it prevents vitamin C from getting into the bone. And then, of course, sodium helps move glucose and amino acids. Um, so we, this is why we're bathed in salt. And when we lose it, um, we t the body actually controls salt intake. It's called a salt set point. And people forget that we, it's the only mineral that actually has a taste receptor. That's how important it is. There's no taste receptor for magnesium or for calcium or for any other mineral but salt. That's how important it is. And if you get too much the taste receptor for salt will flip and you'll get an aversion sign. Things will become too salty. That doesn't happen with sugar though. Sugar, you know, the more you consume, the more you go up. And so the, the, the point is, is that just like we wouldn't control water intake, I wouldn't tell you how much water you should consume per day. Your body knows this inherently. And same thing with salt. Your body knows inherently how much it needs to consume per day. And so to try to tell people to consciously restrict their salt intake is very dangerous. Yeah. How does one figure out how much sodium they really need? I mean, of course, it's confusing these recommendations. Don't eat more than 1.5 grams. Don't eat more than two grams. But of course, we know that people who eat low carb might need more. Definitely athletes that are sweating need more to replace those losses. How does one kind of figure out what that level is? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, for a reasonable, um, if you look at most of the data for the average person, about one and a half teaspoons of salt or about 3.5 grams of sodium is associated with the lowest risk of dying in cardiovascular events. It's like a U-shaped curve, like most things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every, every mineral has a U-shaped curve where you, at the lower end, you're not getting enough. There's an optimal amount, and then there's too much. And salt follows the same pattern. Lifestyle determines really how much salt you need. So uh, coffee intake increases the amount of salt that you need. Four cups of coffee causes on average an extra half a teaspoon of salt loss because the caffeine, the reason why caffeine in coffee is a diuretic is because it's actually a natriuretic. It pushes sodium and chloride and the water follows. That's why it causes diuresis. Um, if you uh, typically on average, if you, if you're exercising, you lose about a half a teaspoon of salt per hour of exercise. But what's interesting is that, um, if you want to acutely boost performance, you actually don't want to match the saltiness of sweat. You want to match the saltiness of blood and you want to hydrate before you work out because when you vigorously exercise, gastric emptying slows down dramatically and you can't hydrate very well when you are actually vigorously exercising. Um, the water and the salt will just sit in the stomach if you're exercising at like 70% VO2 max or higher. So you got to prehydrate. like before performance, I would never do any type of vigorous performance in competition unless I had preloaded with salt and water. And the reason is because the main driver that inhibits vigorous performance is a drop in blood volume. Uh, this basically, there's about an eight to 10% drop in blood volume within five to 15 minutes of vigorous exercise because the blood is being pushed towards working muscle and the blood flowing to the heart drops. And that increases you know, oxygen demand. And then as the body heats up, your blood now has to start pushing more blood to the skin to dissipate heat. So now your heart is competing with working muscle and, and basically skin dissipation to get rid of the heat. And so the, the blood volume drops very quickly that in the arteries that feed the heart and that increases you know, oxygen demand and things like that. So you have to boost blood volume by like eight to 10% before you start vigorously exercising. The only way to do that is to match the saltiness of your blood essentially, which is basically like a full teaspoon of salt in around 22 ounces of fluid. And then some studies show actually going up to 4,300 milligrams of sodium in a full liter. And you start consuming these salt solutions about an hour and a half before exercise. And you slowly consume them over about 30 to 60 minutes. That can increase exercise performance by over 20 minutes. Like you can go 20 minutes longer cycling at a vigorous pace if you do these types of salt loads. And we actually learn this through astronauts. We learn mm -hmm. to hydrate through sending people in space this is really interesting because of the grab, the loss in gravity. So there's no, there's no force pushing on the blood volume. What would happen to astronauts is that their blood volume would shrink. And then when they would come into the earth's atmosphere where they actually have to function, you know, like with logistics and things, they have this low, they would like end up passing out or, you know, all these other issues as they're entering the gravity. So we were, so they were trying to figure out how do we boost blood volume in astronauts? And that's how they actually figured out what type of salt solutions are the best to actually hydrate before exercise.
Interesting. Super interesting. Yeah. It's funny. Like, um, the things that, uh, like department of defense, when exogenous ketones were first being studied, studied on army rangers and, uh, Navy divers and things like that. Super cool. Uh, the things that we learned from those people. Okay, so of course, one of the most famous electrolyte drinks that was ever created for sports enhancement performance, Gatorade, right? Um, Of course, contains a lot of other things like glucose. But I personally think it's very underdosed as far as electrolytes. And when you were talking, I'm thinking to myself, okay, what did we do back in the day? I mean, I used to play nine softball games in a day on a 98 degree humid, you know, Nebraska day. And I'm, I'm a sweater. And, you know, you would play the game and then after the game, you're like, oh, let's drink a Gatorade and like replenish all the things that I lost along with, a, you know, a whole bunch of glucose, which depending on what type of athlete you are, you know, glucose can be helpful. But um, when you were talking about preloading, like it actually increases performance. So interesting for anybody listening that's an athlete or has young athletes, you know, that are going to be, you know, played out in the summer heat. You really want to be getting those electrolytes in. You said an hour to an hour and a half before And of course, people spend so much money on pre-workouts and these other things that they think are going to enhance their uh, gym experience or going to give them more gains. But really, honestly, the cheapest pre-workout is is salt. And before the the newer electrolyte supplements, you know, came to market, I literally used to take this salt shaker and I would just put kind of a dime size, quarter size. I would kind of go by like once again, like what I felt like my body was like craving or needed or tasted for. And I would literally just put it in my hand and I would just throw it down the back of my throat. And then I would chug a glass of water and I'd walk out the door a couple of minutes later to go to the gym. Now I can't wake up an hour and a half earlier. <laughs> I work out at 5am. So I take my salt like at, at 4.30, but that's the best I can do. Um, so if somebody, you know, let's talk about like Gatorade and electrolyte supplements. There's other things that are lost besides sodium, including minerals, which is another thing uh, I want to kind of segue into is to talk about your work with minerals. What other things are really lost when you're sweating that much? There's five main minerals that are lost in sweat in a clinically significant amount. The first one, we'll just call it salt, sodium and chloride. It's technically two minerals. Then there's um, copper, selenium, iodine, and chromium. And chromium is interesting uh, and very clinically significant because the bioavailability of chromium is only 1% from diet or supplement. So if you lose one microgram of chromium, or let's say seven micrograms of chromium, because that's actually how much you lose in about an hour of exercise, you need to consume 700 micrograms to replace that loss because the bioavailability is so low. So when I was doing research for the mineral effects, that one really stood out. And when you start, like if like a lot of wrestlers will put on like those garbage bags, when you start doing stuff like that, where you start wrapping yourself in um, whatever it is to increase sweat loss, the chromium loss can actually go up a hundredfold, which is really mm-hmm. scary, which is why a lot of these people are like near death when they're trying to make weight and stuff, because they're pushing out so much electrolytes and fluid And it's just terrible for your health. And these athletes continue to do this constantly. And that can deplete the bones. And now we're seeing all these bone breaks and like MMA and all these other things. There's only four bone breaks ever in MMA history. And they all happen, I think, in the last like three years or so or four years. Um, I think it was like Weidemann and um, Anderson Silva. And then, of course, Conor McGregor. And it's like, who knows if all these minerals that are being lost through sweat is depleting their bones, which it probably is, to be 100% honest. Right, right. Gosh, that's interesting. 
Okay, so when I was reading the mineral fix, you know, as the physician, I talk about nutrition all the time, and I'm trying to teach patients concept of like calories and macronutrients and micronutrients, right? But what's crazy is when it comes to minerals, there's macro minerals and micro minerals. And uh, I'm just, this is straight out of the book, you guys, one out of every three people in the United States has at least 10 minerals that they're deficient in. Um, that's kind of a mind blowing statistic. And obviously you can, you can hear why. And chromium, when you were talking about chromium, uh, is related to insulin resistance. And it's crazy for me because I was like a three sport athlete and then became super insulin resistant. And you never would have known it from the outside and then became hypothyroid because of my insulin resistance. And a lot of this, it's just like a domino effect inside the body when like one thing is deficient and it starts dragging on another system and another system. And oh my gosh, the human body is like super humbling because it's all connected. It's all connected. But um, I was also looking, uh, you had quoted a study back in here from 2001 that looked at the most common mineral deficiencies. And we talked about sodium and how important it was, but that's actually number 12 on the list out of 12, like only 6% of people, you know, being sodium deficient. Um, you know, the thing about sodium is like, we don't have a storage form of it. The body, you, you, that's why you have to continuously intake it. The body's trying to regulate that, get rid of it, keep it, get rid of it, keep it. But it's not like it has some magical little storage place in like the liver or something where it keeps sodium. But, um, some of these other ones use the chromium that's number one on the list was like 56% of the samples that they took were chromium deficient followed by magnesium. Um, so can we talk about magnesium a little bit? Cause I think that's probably kind of more at the top of my list for people. I, I recommend it a lot in my medical practice. Um, so let's talk about magnesium a little bit. Why is it so important? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, minerals run the show. If we are like biological computers, our tech runs on minerals and magnesium is so important because it's involved in over 600 enzymatic reactions, not um, and it is required as a cofactor for a lot of enzymes to work. And for example, you and I, we both love a certain form of magnesium called magteen, right? Magnesium L3 and A. And that's because that is the only supplement that actually increases magnesium in the brain. But it's magnesium in the brain that is needed to actually create things like melatonin so you can sleep, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, the three feel good neurotransmitters. So, you know, mental health, mood, is completely dependent on magnesium in the brain, but other minerals too, um, zinc, iron, um, copper, calcium, those are important too. In the steps that convert serotonin to melatonin, those enzymes all require minerals and vitamins. So when you think about it from this perspective, like you were saying, like so many things deplete us of minerals because of these chronic disease states, whether it's insulin resistance or inflammation or leaky gut, and you can't absorb them well. And now all your enzymes start dysfunctioning and that can lead to tremors or muscle cramps or depression or whatever it is. So we need to just be conscious of um, trying to get optimal intakes of minerals, but it's difficult because our foods are depleted in them. Processed foods are completely stripped of them. And numerous disease states cause minerals to be depleted. And so it's like, well, how do I even know if I'm de deficient in minerals? And a lot of people have demonized like, you know, blood levels are terrible. Yes and no. Blood levels, what's good about them is they, we know that they try to be consistent. So if you are depleted, there will be a drop. You just usually won't drop into the deficient range. So you got to know what the optimal range is. And so... Inside Tracker has um, some tests that actually give the optimal levels. And I've looked at their ranges. You mean for serum testing, right? Like we're talking about getting your blood drawn? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, and I did a ton of research on optimal levels of magnesium in blood. And I looked at their research and it matched very closely what I had looked at and, and what the conclusions I came to. But essentially, if you're less than two milligrams per deciliter, that's very highly likely that you're suboptimal, even though you're not considered deficient unless you're like less than 1.7. So if we start looking at more optimal ranges on blood levels, that's highly indicative of mineral deficiencies. Yeah. Magnesium is so important. I remember back when I was a medical student and I was working in the uh, intensive care unit in the ICU, we'd go by every day and we were checking serum mag levels and they were constantly low. Like every single patient, we'd look at the pharmacist, give them a gram of mag, give them a gram of mag, give them a gram of mag. And it makes sense because like you're saying, it's, it's, it's needed and utilized in so many different processes that when we're under stress, when we're in a chronic disease state, like something in the intensive care unit, our magnesium burn rate is higher. And that's how I always explain to patients is that, um, first of all, most people are deficient anyway. Plus we live this high stress lifestyle. Our nutrients are depleted from our soil. So even just the mag content of food is lower. And so unfortunately supplementation of mag is necessary for a lot of people and it's uh, cheap and effective. I'm just going to name some of the things I use it for in my practice mood disturbances, um, slow bowels, um, heavy, horrible periods and cramping. And it, we could, you know, dive down each of those rabbit holes and explain, you know, why it helps. But, um, or I have my mom in magnesium for, you know, dementia prevention and those types of things, just like you talked about magnesium three and eight. So there's a bunch of different, you know, types of magnesium out there. How does someone determine which one to supplement with? Yeah, I think I always try to look at what function are you looking to optimize? Because the salts that are, you know, attached to the anions that are attached to the magnesium, which is the positively charged molecule, so sort of determine like where it goes in the body or what its function is. So like you were saying, if you're constipated, then the magnesium supplement that seems to be best is magnesium citrate. Um, for like muscle soreness, maybe magnesium malate. Um, for mood, anything to do with the brain, magnesium L3 and 8, because it can pass the blood-brain barrier and increase magnesium levels in the blood. For exercise performance, um, magnesium orotate seems to potentially be best because orotate actually acts like a delayed release beta alanine um, in the liver. So there's all these like it's like dependent on like what you're actually looking to improve will sort of determine what type of magnesium salt you should be consuming. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, it's hard to explain sometimes to patients, but it depends why you're using it. And sometimes, you know, you might take a complex that has more than one type of magnesium in it. Okay. Let's go um, back to testing for a little bit because everybody is listening at home saying, oh my gosh, which, which minerals am I deficient in? So we talked a little bit about serum and how there may be a difference in optimal levels what are other ways that you can test minerals? What is the most, I just recently did like a hair mineral analysis um, that I'm going to talk about on another upcoming podcast. Like how do you test? How do you know? Difficult. You have to be very well versed. Um, so hair mineral analysis is essentially like a three month snapshot of the blood because nutrients get taken up from the blood into the hair at the root. I mean, I have really long hair. Like, what, is this a couple of years ago down here? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, true. Very true. Um, it will depend on where you're actually pulling it from. Um, but we have to understand certain minerals are what are called acute phase reactants. So there's certain minerals that you have to look at on a hair analysis and in blood and really interpret with caution. So for example, copper and iron are both acute phase reactants. It, when you have inflammation, copper goes up, iron goes down, and that's what will happen in the hair. 
even if you're not deficient in them. So you have to understand which minerals are acute phase reactants. Selenium is one and two. Selenium and zinc go down just with inflammation. So you could have low selenium and zinc in the hair or in blood, but it's just due to higher levels of inflammation and you may not actually be deficient. Those are the four basically acute phase reactants. So once you take that into play, hair tissue analysis can uh, be a good snapshot, but you can never just use one test. There's no one single test that is definitive, except um, an IV magnesium load test. This is considered gold standard for testing for magnesium deficiency. Basically, you just give someone an IV load of about 400 milligrams of magnesium over a few hours, and then you see how much comes out in the urine. If they're retaining a lot, they're deficient. That's a very good way to test for magnesium deficiency. And of course, there's different immune cells that actually take up minerals that are better at reflecting total body status versus blood. Um, so for example, copper, leukocyte copper, which is a white blood cell, those levels um, are much better reflective of total body copper status. Um, neutrophil zinc is actually one of the better tests for zinc status for total body zinc. Um, a mono, mononuclear blood cell magnesium is the only blood test that has ever been shown to actually um, match IV magnesium load. So, but these are a little bit more like laboratory, like research type of tools that a lot of people won't have access to. Yeah. It's hard to find them in like a standard reference lab or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Talk to me a little bit about ratios. You're talking about like iron does this, zinc does this, selenium does this. And how important are ratios? Because of course, in the era of COVID, everybody was like snatching up zinc left and right. And they're taking zinc lozenges and spraying it up their nose. And like, I mean, we talked about this U-shaped curve idea. And of course, these ratios can start to affect each other. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great uh, point. Because um, when you get too much of one mineral, you can start reducing the absorption of others. So zinc is a good example of potentially inducing copper deficiency. Um, so the research shows that as long as you have a copper intake of at least one milligram per day, it's very hard to induce deficiency, even with fairly high doses of zinc. Um, so there's like a threshold effect. Um, and then, of course, there's this balance between calcium and magnesium. You really don't want calcium more than three to one on intake to, uh, to magnesium. And we see this right with omega-6 and omega-3. Like, you don't really want a, a higher than four to one ratio because things need to be in balance in the body. And sodium and potassium is another good example. I like a one-to-one -one ratio of sodium to potassium, like four grams of sodium, four grams of potassium. Um, a lot of studies show that that's enough. So we need to keep our minerals in balance. Um, and then there's also bioavailability of nutrients that a lot of people um, forget about because a lot of people like, take for example, like spinach, right? Everyone thinks spinach is a good source of iron. It's actually a terrible source of iron. The bioavailability of iron is only 2% in spinach. It's 20%. That's not, that's not what Google says. <laughs> Well, and so it's telling people not to eat red meat and to eat spinach. <laughs> and I think there's a there's a balance like spinach has things that muscle meat doesn't. But as far as like a good source of calcium and iron, even though it's high in those two minerals, the oxalates bind a lot of it. And so it's not a good source, but it is a good source of potassium and magnesium because the oxalates don't seem to bind those two minerals. So when you're looking for like ways to pair foods Okay, yeah, sure. A couple ounces of spinach if you tolerate it, if you're if you're not sensitive to it. 
would actually be a good pairing to muscle meat because it's providing folates and vitamin K1 and, you know, magnesium and potassium. Um, so we tend to demonize foods, right? Like we'll demonize kale and spinach when actually it's a pretty decent pairing with muscle meat if, if you tolerate it. Right. So is it better if someone was taking supplementation, is it better to take it away from eating plants due to some of those interactions or does it matter? That's a good question. Probably. I've never even thought about it, but you were just talking about it. And then it came into my mind because I'm like, huh, interesting. I mean, I I would die if I needed like a life-saving medication because I couldn't remember to take a supplement anyway to save my life. But um, yeah, it's something interesting to think about. Something interesting to think about for sure. Okay. So we talked about testing and we talked about um, uh, uh, supplementing with, with minerals. What other, what other big things can you think about when it comes to um, oh, let's talk about water. Cause somebody asked last night, I was on a, a, a call with a, a coaching group that I'm in and, you know, we have these water filters now and these like filtered water bottles and, um, where we're losing minerals in our, in our water. Can we talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, we, we've softened water because of the scaling that would occur when we would like cook or or on the pipes because water typically contains fairly decent amounts of calcium and magnesium. And that would cause scaling. Cause we don't want to scrub the shower. We don't have time for that. <laughs> so it's almost like we took the more like uh, aesthetic approach and just softened water artificially. So we didn't have to deal with the, the mineral scaling. And so that's one thing. The other thing where we're losing minerals is when you consume plain water, it does flush the body out of potassium. And that can make you salt sensitive. So like all of us now just are just constantly consuming just like plain tap water throughout the day. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, we, we didn't carry around like eight water bottles and just drink free water all the time. Jugs of water. People come into my clinic with jugs of water. Because <laughs> that's what we've been told is like eight glasses of water per day is healthy. Um, we wouldn't have had access to plain free water like every single day that much. We would probably get a lot of our water through plants and also a lot of it through blood, but that would also bring a lot of salt with it. So it's just, the water has become a huge issue. And I try to consume most of my water from mineral waters. I like Gerald Steiner because it helps balance out the acid from the animal-based diet that I consume. And it also brings magnesium and calcium in a very bioavailable form because it's already dissolved in water and ionic, and that can basically absorb very well. Okay, interesting. So, so don't soften our water. Is that what you're saying? I mean, yeah, like, yeah, like drink water as it like naturally exists with minerals. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And yeah, I mean, mineral water has become a thing, but. Um, a lot of people are just drinking the, I mean, I've seen this huge trend, right? I feel like uh, these uh, seltzer waters and things like that are, I mean, you never used to see, there was like one brand five years ago. And now when I go to the grocery store, there's an entire aisle of sparkling waters. And, um, I mean, I think it's great that we're giving people lots of options, but they don't necessarily contain some of these trace minerals. So you want to, you know, really be, you know, paying attention to that. Should people just eat dirt? I feel like people should just eat dirt. <laughs> I feel like I try to try to get most of my minerals and vitamins through food and water. And I, I kind of set my diet like this. I try to, the base is like 12 ounces of red meat. Like that's where I start with at a minimum. I think for people to hit the 
at least the RDAs of zinc, B12, iron, protein. If you're not having at least 12 ounces of red meat, especially for a woman who hasn't gone through menopause, you're in serious trouble. It's gonna be very difficult to get those nutrients if you're not setting that as the base. And then typically what I do is I'll add like two pastured eggs for you know things like vitamin D and folate. And then I'll add in like a half ounce of liver. And typically I'll, I'll buy blends or I'll add that with ground meat. So I am sitting on this animal-based diet. And then I start picking different foods to hit minerals that a lot of people are deficient in like manganese. So I'll consume a couple pieces of Ezekiel bread for the manganese. Or if you're carnivore, you can just consume mussels if you want to get manganese. Um, for boron, that one's hard. Mostly boron comes from, you can get, if you're keto, you can get boron from like avocados. So like, I try to like selectively pick which foods to try to hit optimal intakes of all the minerals. Yeah. But you are way more highly educated than, than a lot of the rest of us when it comes to it. So it's, and of course, many people's diets aren't varied. Like it's, you know, like a, they eat a lot of the same things. And of course it's a lot of processed foods that are stripped of all these things. Okay. One big question I always get when I talk about, um, you know, salt supplementation with real salt, they're like, wait, 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 what about the iodine? Because one thing we did, you know, in the United States was to, um, iodized table salt. And, um, a lot of people don't think that these natural salts like real salt contain iodine, but they do. There's a certificate of analysis on their website that, that shows the content of a lot of these trace minerals, including iodine. But of course, um, a lot of people don't get, you know, iodine in their diet and other sources. And one thing that I take care of a lot as an OBGYN is, is thyroid problems that especially in women, cause I take care of women and they're much more common. Can you talk about iodine a little bit and should people supplement, you know, what's the deal with iodine? So I think at least 30 to 50 countries are still considered iodine insufficient where they're not getting enough. And then iodine is one of those minerals. There's like this pretty narrow threshold where like you want to get between like 150 to 300 micrograms but if you start getting over 300 micrograms you can actually sometimes cause thyroid issues so you want to get enough but you got to be careful to not overshoot too much and the other important piece is selenium because in order to activate the thyroid hormones you need selenium for those enzymes to work and so you i see a lot of people not having enough selenium and that's potentially why they're hypothyroid or or things like that and you're and right. it can be dangerous if you're giving iodine in the face of selenium deficiency. So people yeah. have to kind of understand that. How True. That works. True. And then, well, what's, I'll, I'll sort of bounce around here. One thing is you're correct. Redmond real salt. Um, the reason why I think the FDA makes them not say not a good source of iodide is because they don't contain artificially added potassium iodide. They contain real iodine. Um, and it, it contains about, based on their mineral analysis, 170 micrograms of iodine, which is basically the RDA per 10 grams of salt. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that your mineral status directly determines how well you will prevent the absorption and the damage from heavy metals. So we can't get away from heavy metals like cadmium, lead, mercury. For example, the selenium content of fish is very, very important. Even if the fish is fairly high in mercury, if it has a really high amount of selenium, then it's not as damaging as a fish that has a lower amount of mercury, but very low amounts of selenium because selenium is essentially an antidote to mercury. So it's interesting how nature gave us these minerals to actually be antagonists of heavy metals. Okay, interesting. 
Um, so another thing that we did in the United States was fluoridation of water. So adding uh, fluoride to prevent tooth decay and, and dental mineralization. But when you look a long time ago, ancestrally, like people didn't have bad teeth. They had great teeth. And of course, you know, the advent of added sugars and things like that are causing such an incredible amount of, of tooth decay. But there's so much controversy with fluoride. You know, people think we need to pull it out of the water system. Talk about fluoride for me just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so topically, if you were to put fluoride on the teeth, that does have some evidence for preventing dental caries. But to actually have public recommendations and to infuse the water that you ingest orally with fluoride, hoping that it'll get on the teeth and prevent cavities, numerous review articles have shown that the benefit to risk ratio is not even close to being there um, in regards to the harms, like the lower um, IQs and you know, potential other neurological issues that have been associated with drinking water from fairly high concentrations of fluoride. So the, the best way is not to drink fluoridated water for preventing dental. You brush your teeth, right? And then like it should be topically on the tooth. You shouldn't have to drink it in order to prevent dental caries. So should you use fluoridated toothpaste? I think there's more evidence and more of a benefit to risk ratio than drinking fluoridated water. Um, but I typically just try to go with like more um, either, you know, Redmond has uh, an earth paste or there's more natural ways like micro um, or nanoparticle, um, like appetite crystal type of um, toothpaste. I try to do more natural toothpaste. Yeah. Yeah. Some days I kind of wonder, like, where did toothbrushing come from? Like, <laughs> I have dentists in the family. Their heads are probably spinning right now. Yes, please brush your teeth. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, let's go back to everybody always says I have nice teeth, but I really just think I'm genetically blessed a little bit. I mean, I take care of my teeth. I would probably get an F minus for flossing. But um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the, the natural toothpaste. And um, Redmond actually has a, a new one coming out that has silver in it. What do you think about that? Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I know topically silver is a very good antibacterial, so that could have something to do with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, can we go back to heavy metals for just a second? Because I have patients sometimes that come in and they've had like some sort of testing done or they're going through like chelation therapy with this outside provider. Talk to me about heavy metals. Like how does somebody know, like how do you test for that or know if you have like toxic levels of heavy metals? How would one know? So for things like um, lead, urinary tests will tell you acutely um, if you're intoxicated and then blood levels too can tell you as well. Yeah. And I live in a very heavy lead. Uh, we have a lot of lead in our soil here because there used to be um, a factory, you know, and so it's in our, in our soil and all kids, I, I don't know if this is just Nebraska, but like my three girls, they all get tested for lead. Like at age one, it's like a state mandate. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, but those are only acute tests, like if you've been acutely exposed. To, to get at long-term exposure, actually, hair analysis is the best. Hair analysis is actually much better than um, mineral analysis because there's really no functions for these heavy metals. So if you truly do have an overload, they accumulate in the hair. And there's very good data that hair analysis for heavy metals is a very good indication of heavy metal overload. Now, the, the chelation and things like that, you got to be careful with because you can be pulling the heavy metals out and actually releasing them um, and causing issues and actually causing kidney damage. There's actually not a whole lot of data supporting the whole 
uh, chelation type of therapies for heavy metals. Yeah. Um, I think just increasing your mineral status is, is one of the best ways. Like zinc is one of the best way, uh, a fairly high zinc diet, which again is red meat, is one of the best ways to counteract cadmium toxicity. Yeah, more reasons to eat red meat. Um, okay, interesting. And then sauna, right? Like sauna therapy is a really good way because we sweat out some of these heavy metals. That's a good, that was a good point. I totally forgot about sauna. Not only heavy metals, but phthalates and BPA, um, even flame retardants. And you, you, do, you can push those out through sweat. Interesting, but make sure you replace your electrolytes. And then um, I can't, maybe it was Rhonda Patrick one time I was listening to one of her talks about sauna and heavy metals and sweating them out. Um, that basically after you get out of the sauna and you have all this sweat sitting on your skin, you should go take a shower and use like a very, you know, gentle cleanser, nothing with like chemicals and all this crap in it, but, you know, go rinse off your body and use um, just a very, you know, gentle cleanser on the skin because otherwise they're just sitting on your skin and can get reabsorbed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Super interesting. Um, so of course, one thing that I deal with on a daily basis is pregnancy and we've talked about salt requirements. We've talked about mineral requirements, which of course are all higher in pregnancy and, um, iodine super, super important one for preventing uh, normal cognitive function in your babies and many prenatal vitamins, uh, you know, don't contain this and the needs are higher. So just such an important issue, um, in my world. And one thing I've experienced is, um, pica. So where a woman will come in literally like eating dirt or eating, I've seen a woman who came in eating like baking soda the body is so incredibly smart. And I think when you're deficient in some of these things, it will drive people to do very interesting things like this. Or a lot of times they'll chew on ice too. Um, and I think it's, I think it's personally due to some of these mineral deficiencies. Have you ever yeah. heard about this? Yeah, absolutely. So in the Sulfix, I uncovered a, a paper published in the Landsat. I think it was on like a thousand or something pregnant women. It was why it was pretty wild, but they, they basically split them in two and they gave the pregnant women, uh, up to upwards of anywhere from hundred to 400 grams of salt versus the other, uh, you know, group basically got like your low salt recommendation, like the miscarriages, the preterm labor was like double in the low salt group versus the insanely high amount of salt group. And that's because you are pushing blood towards the baby. And so your body has a lot less blood volume now. So you're, 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 you're feeding two beings now. And so the salt needs for most pregnancies are dramatically increased. Like typically what a lot of the studies show is like, uh, like twice a normal salt intake helps with, um, you know, keeping blood pressure normal. A lot of these preeclampsia and things like that, um, probably are driven due to salt deficiency. I think salt deficiency and hyperinsulinemia. I think it's just like, it's a two factor combo. And I, when I went through training, nobody talked about hyperinsulinemia being a cause of preeclampsia, which is something I was seeing, you know, on a daily basis during my training. And then when I got into low carb world and really started doing so much research on, on pregnancy and pregnancy related nutrition, and I'm finding all these studies on hyperinsulinemia and it's, you know, correlation with something called, you know, preeclampsia. And then of course the treatment that we give to women to prevent eclamptic seizures is IV magnesium. I'm, <laughs> I give a lot of IV magnesium sulfate to help prevent seizures, um, in these women. So it's such an important, important topic. So anybody out there that's listening, that's, you know, uh, in the preconception phase wanting to get pregnant, these things are, are, are super, super, super important. Okay. So, um, you know, supplementing is great. 
but I'm such a fan of getting your nutrients from your diet in the most bioavailable form possible. So we've talked about how amazing beef is and uh, the nutrient content um, of beef, but what other like superfoods can you think of? And of course they can be animal, they can be plant foods, but what other superfoods can you think of? Cause you have like a whole chapter on this than the mineral fix. I would say um, wild salmon or sardines are a superfood because they're going to give you more of the omega threes, which are really important for, helping with delayed onset muscle soreness, reducing heart rate, improving muscle protein synthesis, and obviously associated with like a lower risk of almost every single type of disease, um, having higher blood levels of omega-3s, particularly a lower risk of sudden cardiac death. So what this is what's really interesting is that actually land meat, like pastured meat is high in something called DPA, docosapentaenoic acid. And about 30% of DPA actually gets converted to DHA. So a lot of people have always been like, man, like, how do I get DHA? Like, if I'm not eating fish, you actually get a fairly amount from the conversion of DPA to DHA. But it's still, of course, always good to also add in the, you know, preformed EPA and DHA too, because it does seem like three to four grams of EPA and DHA per day is optimal for numerous reasons. Interesting. Super interesting. And of course, there's so much individuality. Like when it comes to these things, I got down the rabbit hole of doing SNP testing and genetic testing on myself and found out that I had, um, you know, uh, an enzyme, like I don't convert vitamin A from plants. Well, I get it better from animal foods. I, um, have an enzyme where I don't convert thyroid hormone to its active, you know, uh, uh, form very well. Um, I don't convert plant omegas. So like, um, ALA and EPA. So I have to get more animal sources, which is funny because I feel best eating mostly an animal-based diet. And after I did all this, I ate that way first and then did this genetic testing. I'm like, okay, this is so interesting. Like, this is why I feel good eating this way. But of course it's just, it's so individual, like how people will respond and absorb and the way that they, you know, utilize things. So, um, can we get back to coffee and tea? It's such a controversial topic. People are like, Oh, drink coffee. It's like a superfood, uh, or tea. It has polyphenols. But then of course you had talked about how, uh, you know, it can cause dehydration. So what's the deal with minerals when it comes to coffee and tea? Yeah. So I think with minerals, the the biggest loss will be sodium um, and chloride. And actually chloride is lost even more than sodium with coffee, caffeine, um, even tea, but tea isn't super high in caffeine. I think tea is about one fifth the caffeine is coffee. So, um, you know, if you're sort of looking for a little bit of a kick, but not the mineral loss, then tea is a better way to go. Although I enjoy coffee much more than tea. And then there may be, if you are like a postmenopausal woman and you're not consuming a good amount of calcium, there is a decent amount of calcium that is lost with uh, coffee and caffeine intake. So that's just something to bear in mind. Now, the other nutrient that's probably lost through caffeine and coffee intake is taurine, the amino acid taurine, because it follows sodium. Uh, so if you flush out the kidneys of sodium, which happens with coffee, then you're preventing taurine from being reabsorbed um, with the sodium. So your taurine levels may need to go up and actually fish and things like that are one of your best sources of taurine. 
Okay. Interesting. Can you talk for just a minute about cooking methods, um, cooking methods of animal foods and plant foods and how that affects um, nutrient content, vitamin, mineral content? Mm -hmm. One of the things I try not to do is to overcook my meat. Like for steak, I like just meat. I like to have some decent pink in there because the nutrient, it'll be more nutritious versus like cooking the heck out of the piece of meat. It'll also contain more water and it'll actually be more filling and satiating versus when you overcook it, you dry out the meat a lot. And, and actually steak is like 60% water, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, or maybe even right. higher, maybe like 65%. Um, whereas fruits and vegetables are like 95% water. But for cooking methods, um, I mean, I love to grill. I'm not going to lie. But I, do, I do coat it with extra virgin olive oil to reduce the advanced glycation end products. And if I do char the meat, I typically try to cut off the char because that's where a lot of the carcinogens lie. So it's almost like we've always been told, you know, meat causes cancer and this and that. But like, it's like the nuances. It's like, no, it's really like the char. Like cut off the char and don't eat that. That's really like the carcinogenic compounds. And if you pair meat with like just a little bit of plant foods or spices or, or olive oil, you prevent a lot of those harms. Yeah, like rosemary, I know is a good one. Yeah. Avocados too. So like there's, I hate when people just say, well, meat causes cancer I, because it's such a blanket statement and there's no nuance ever in the discussion. And there's really simple ways, vinegars um, and other things that reduce the formation of those carcinogenic compounds. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is all good to hear because I like my steak medium rare. <laughs> and then, so with plants, when it comes to plants though, of course, to reduce some of like the plant toxins and things like that, you know, you should ferment and, and cook. And I mean, is that true? I mean, or do you lose a lot of minerals when you, you know, boil your broccoli or whatever? You do, you'll lose it if you are boiling, correct. Um, which is why like, if I cook spinach, I always drink the juice because you're, that's where a lot of the potassium is going. And even with cooking meat, you do lose some potassium in the juices that are lost, but not animal foods are going to have much less losses in nutrients compared to plant foods. Um, so, yeah, I think that it, you do, you cook away a lot of lectins. Like, you know, so if you're consuming raw vegetables or raw like um, nuts and things like that, they're going to be higher in lectins than, than cooked um, uh, nuts or roasted nuts per se. And so, yeah, a lot of people can't tolerate plant foods because their guts are messed up as is. And you start throwing five very fibrous foods into their gut and, and um, these other compounds, gluten and things like that. And on top of a damaged gut, it just can cause a ton of issues for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how the microbiome research plays out. Have you been following like a lot of the new research? Like, do you think like our microbiome probably influences some of our you know, requirements of these, uh, minerals and, and macro and micro, uh, nutrients. Yeah, it does. I mean, our, our microbiome has a dramatic effect on, you know, how we absorb nutrients. If we can convert certain nutrients like K1 to K2, um, in the microbiome is influenced by like omega-3 and omega-6. If you, if your diet's high, very high in omega-6, you'll start producing the bad gut bacteria. Um, yeah, there's a German. I think, I mean, it all boils, it really all boils down to what you're ingesting, how that's damaging the gut, and then things can start leaking into the systemic system and cause massive issues. So, it, but it all comes from what you're putting in your mouth, essentially, for most people. That's where the problem lies. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, one thing you said, uh, you had brought up 
some of these myths like meat, red meat causes cancer. And there was an interesting study that just came out. I think it was even yesterday talking about how it was this meta analysis of all this nutritional research showing that red meat, once again, uh, people who eat red meats and processed meats have an increased risk of, of cardiovascular disease. And I'm, you know, starting to like pour through it. And of course these are like 24 hour food frequency questionnaires. And can you, because you're in the world of looking at editorial journals and publications and you read a lot of research, can you dumb it down for the listeners just a little bit? Like what is the problem with nutritional research? Why are we all confused? Why are we all at each other's throats about some of these different topics? The only way to know if a, a certain nutrient uh, affects an outcome is to actually pretty much do metabolic ward studies where you literally confine people and you give them the food and it's identical with the only difference being, let's say, red meat versus not having red meat. That's so the- we'd take you and I and all of our friends and we'd shove them in this like wing of the hospital and we would serve them food on a tray. Yeah, and some of these studies actually looked at prisoners too, because essentially they're right. Um, they're it's like a metabolic ward essentially. Um, but yeah, you have to control the environment, and that's why nutritional advice um, is so convoluted and everyone's so confused. Because very, very few studies have ever actually done that, where they they control for everything: exercise, sunlight, um, and they give the exact same diet with the only difference being, let's say one to two pounds of red meat versus a diet that does not. They've never done that before. That's the only way to actually prove that red meat causes cancer or that salt causes high blood pressure. They don't ever do that. Yeah. And that was was frustrating for me, you know, looking through the study, it's like, I'm thinking, okay, well, how much processed crap and how much sugar and how many carbs are these people eating? And when it comes to these food frequency questionnaires, Just because somebody ate something in the last 24 hours doesn't mean that that's normally what they eat. And plus, my memory is really bad. If you told me, if you asked me, like, how many eggs do you eat per day over the on average over the last 365 days? I don't know. I don't know. Some weeks I eat a dozen. Some weeks I don't eat any. Uh, there's just so many inaccuracies associated with these studies. And the unfortunate part is when they come out, people are just headline readers and, you know, and then people reshare it and reshare it and reshare it. And then my patients come in confused. Wait, I'm supposed to eat salt. Oh, I'm not supposed to eat salt. Red meat causes cancer. Oh, now you're telling beef is good for me. Oh, eggs have too much cholesterol. I mean, you can literally find an argument for either side if you get on the internet and and search around. It's very true. Um, Well, the other thing too, is that they don't ever really tease out the quality of the meat. They'll just be like, red meat is associated with us. Sometimes they will tease out processed meat, but even from a red meat perspective, there's different levels of meat. Is this wild venison versus like grain fed, you know, finished meat? There there are differences there too. So I do think if you can limit your intake of processed meats, that's probably better and try to consume more grass finished meat. Yeah. Do you think it makes, I mean... I'm always thinking to myself as a clinician, does this make a clinic, you know, is this clinically significant? And patients ask me all the time, like, should I, obviously it's one thing, you know, eat what you can afford, but if given the the choice between, you know, uh, let's just say grass fed, grass finished beef versus conventionally raised, you know, beef, talk to me, like, do you really think it makes a difference? Obviously if you can afford one or the other, but. Yeah, I think there's levels to differences, right? Jumping from processed meat to grain finished meat. Um, 
processed meat is much worse, right? And then when you go from like hot dogs, deli meat, that's what we mean by processed meats. Yeah. Like, um, you know, because they add fillers and gluten and there's, you know, nitrates and all sorts of things. Exactly. And I think, um, I do think there are differences. There's no doubt. Like I try to always say we should be consuming food as close to nature as possible. Mm -hmm. And so we would have never consumed meat that was green finished, Not the, but that's still better than most foods that other people are eating. So switching from like a processed food diet to like eating like a animal based diet, that's okay. So what, let's say the steak is, um, grain finished. That's so much better than what they were doing. So there's steps, there's levels, right? Of course, your highest tier level is going to be like your venison, your elk, your bison that are hundred percent grass fed. Um, of course. And same thing with like wild salmon. That's like your top, top, top tier. Do you have to do that though, to be, to live in a long, like good life? No humans. I mean, we can survive till 80 years old eating processed food, right? It's just that we'll end up with a ton of chronic diseases later on. So mm -hmm. you kind of just got to eat what you can afford essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know fish just because of a lot of the contaminants, like in our oceans and things like that, I really try to get, well, personally, I just think that, um, farm raised salmon is like so disgusting. Um, but yeah, I mean, eat what you can afford. And, and like you said, there's just like, there's layers of like, okay, you're go you're moving up on the nutrition scale. Okay. You're, you know, moving down on the nutrition scale. And I think one of the scary things for me as a clinician is, you know, this really kind of this plant-based movement, but then we're seeing things like Beyond Burger and these other just processed plant foods. And I just have a huge concern that as we really kind of push this plant-based narrative, that it's really just going to push people to continue to eat more processed foods and, and high in carbohydrates and, and flour and sugar. And it's, you know, you're scaring people away from nutrient dense animal foods. I, <laughs> I just think we're going to continue to be in the tailspin we're already in. It's a I think it's a huge problem. We have to understand that prior to agricultural revolution, we didn't have a choice. We couldn't be a vegan. We had, we had to eat whatever was available. We're like in this unique position that we can even eat, you know, hundred percent plant foods. It's not like the optimal diet by any means. You have to supplement essentially in order to even thrive. It can kill children. And so, but a lot of these cardiologists and people that sit on these boards are like plant-based and vegan. And so like, I'm, I'm worried about like the whole, what's the messaging and what's, what are the guidelines? Cause it's already headed towards that direction. And if you start saying that meat and eggs are good for you, that you start getting like deplatformed now. It's like, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a crazy, crazy level of censorship that's, that's coming out. Okay. Well, just to wrap this up, something I do at the end of all of my podcasts is something called the semen analysis, where I basically give my opinion on everything that we've talked about. So for everybody, we're, uh, we're going to finish this up with a semen analysis. Uh, sodium is so, so important, but so are all these other minerals. So like we highlighted, uh, one in three people are definitely deficient in more than 10 different minerals. And uh, chromium, salt, iodine, all these things that we talked about today. If you're interested in learning more, you can, of course, pick up um, Dr. James Nicolantonio's book called The Mineral Fix that he co-authored with uh, Simland. It is thick, you guys. It is real thick. This is a thick book. It's going to take a long time to get through it. But I just want to stress the importance of salt and um, how it's been unfairly demonized in, in the world. And so just understand the importance of it. If you're in the low-carb world, you need more. If you're an athlete and you sweat, you need more. Um, make sure you're getting your salt from a good source and, uh, go check out Redmond real salt. Um, we'll, uh, try to put the links James for the, uh, uh, books down in the notes of, of this podcast. So thank you so much for your time. 
and your knowledge and your expertise. I know people are going to get a ton out of this episode. Thanks for having me on, Jamie.